Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for children and for leaders as well. Who is Jesus? Part 2 from John chapter 7 verses 25 to 52. If you weren't here last Sunday for whatever reason, then you probably need to listen to it online so you can sort of get the gist of uh, part two as it flows on from the early part of chapter seven. So we do find ourselves in in chapter seven and uh, the background is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the, the three great feasts of the people of God, the Jews. The other was the Passover, and 50 days after that was Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles that happened round about this time, uh, September, October, and it coincided with, uh, with the harvest as well. And as we work through the text, it, it is always a challenge. I always find it a challenge as a pastor, particularly when you're going through an exegetical series, to be able to say, well, what is God trying to, to say to us? And If God is trying to say it, why is it here in Scripture and what is he trying to tell his people? I'm not trying to make the word relevant. God's word is always relevant. But what are the lessons that God has for us? And we will draw from this passage different aspects that the Holy Spirit will use to teach us something of where we are in our spiritual walk. So we're going to ask a series of questions which the people who were listening to Jesus, would have asked. Some of the questions are implicit, others are very explicit. And since in the 2,000 years, since that time, the, the world has been asking these questions regarding the identity of Jesus. This is the stuff for which the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will judge us, will judge the world. We have to get this right. Because one day, this is the stuff for which that I'm telling you, you will be, it's not going to be a, uh, an exam, it's just going to be, you have believed or you haven't believed in the one that I sent. So, Let's look at verses 25 to 27. Where is he from? That is the first question. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities themselves really concluded that he is indeed the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. From, or, or so they thought. Jesus, as we saw last week in the early part, that there's this, uh, the whole family of Jesus and his brothers that would have made this trip, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, all the way up to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasted a bit, about a week. And they would have gone as a family since early childhood, the, the brothers, mum and dad, they would have gone in their pilgrimage. But now things are different because Jesus is the Messiah and 
you can imagine how difficult it would have been to live with divinity within your household. They just didn't accept it. So the, the brothers sort of mockingly say to Jesus, why don't you just go, get out there, just tell them who you are and see what happens. But Jesus wasn't going to be pushed around by anybody. He was going to go in his own time. Jesus eventually makes it to Jerusalem and he doesn't hold back. And here the the residents of Jerusalem entered the conversation. They knew that the rulers wanted to kill Jesus and they were amazed that he was teaching openly and getting away with it. So if they're trying to kill him, how come they're giving him all this freedom to speak openly? So... Jesus is not a coward after all. In fact, he speaks with boldness, with courage, the truth. Perhaps the rulers had been convinced secretly that indeed he is the Messiah sent from God. That, that, and, and so some of the people are wondering, maybe secretly they're saying it, but They're not open. And remember that that John is the one that tells us in John chapter 3 about the story between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus came at night to ask Jesus these questions. And that's where we have one of the greatest verses, possibly the greatest verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world. About being born again. And Nicodemus is part of this ruling leadership. The Sanhedrin. They, They are there. We know at least that he was slowly coming to a journey of faith which started in chapter 3 and here he speaks up. At the end of this chapter he speaks up in defence of the process of justice with regards to Jesus. Now just remember when we say Jesus Christ we say Jesus Messiah because Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah and Messiah means anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' surname, okay? I just have to get that straight. Rather, when we say Jesus Christ, they are his titles. Jesus, the anointed one, the anointed one. Jesus Messiah, love that song then why, why are they, were they not worshipping him and leading others to worship him if indeed some were starting to believe? But their question is hmm, suggesting a negative response. No, the rulers do not believe that he is the Christ. And they didn't believe he was the Christ because they didn't want to believe he was the Christ. So they had this, they used a bit of logic to come to that conclusion. A logical deduction, we call it. The first one, the first statement is, nobody knows where the Christ comes from. That was the the overall belief that they had. That nobody will know where the Christ will come from. False belief, but anyway, that's what they believed. 
Secondly, we know where Jesus of Nazareth came from. We know, we know his family, we know his brothers. He comes from the region of Galilee. And so the conclusion then is therefore Jesus cannot be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. So the people could not see the truth because they were blinded by what they thought were dependable facts. And they, they very quickly simply dismissed his divine origins. Who sent him? Verses 28 to 31. Next question. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. The message has an interesting take on this, the message translation of the Bible in verses 28 to 29. And, uh, and I'll read the message translation. And it says, that provoked Jesus who was teaching the temple to cry out, yes, you think you know me and where I'm from, but that's not where I'm from. I didn't set myself up in, in business. My true origin is in the one who sent me. And you don't know him at all. I come from him. That's how I know him. He sent me here. It's a very simple, very short statement, one after the other, very simple language. And it's this simple language that has baffled theologians for years. At this point, our Lord raised his voice so that everybody could hear. He wasn't whispering. He was probably using irony in his words. He told them why they did not know him. And the reason they did not know him is because they themselves did not know the Father. Them's a fighting words. Basically saying to them, these supposedly devoted followers, right? They're there because of God. This whole tabernacle thing because they're the people of God. And Jesus is saying, you don't know him. He's not saying, you don't know him like I do. He's saying, you don't know him at all. But Jesus went even further. He asserted that he not only knew the Father, but he was also sent by him. He was once claiming, his, again, once again he's claiming to be God because he's sent from God. He was not simply born into this world like any other human being. He was sent to earth by the Father on a mission. This means that if he was sent from God, he is God. He was not, even though they think they know he was born in this particular family, he's actually out of this world. 
even though he was born in this world. Our Lord knew that his his time had not yet come because they couldn't lay a glove on him. That's a boxing term. And he, he knew his timetable. In fact, he would be back in Jerusalem about six months from these events, six months down the track, in that final week where everything happened. That was the time, but not now. I think it's greatly encouraging to Christian witness today to know that if God is for us, no one can be against us. When, uh, when we find ourselves, when the brothers and sisters find themselves in jail, <coughs> because of the faith or when they find themselves in a situation where they cannot understand could be an illness could be an accident it is because for the believer we have to know God's purposes that God is sovereign that God has allowed it to happen that way we need to be confident in God We have just sung. He hasn't failed us yet. And he's not going to fail us in the future either. Despite how dark, how terrible, how horrible things look like, it it has to be one of the great lessons in the Christian life that like Daniel, he was in the middle of God's will at the bottom of a pit with lions around him. And not one of the lions laid a hand on him, or a teeth, for that matter, or paws, or whatever it is. In the middle, in the centre of God's will, at the bottom of a pit. And no one could lay a glove on him. I hope that you and I can say the same thing. And I think that this is important for us to be strengthened in our faith that when everything just doesn't make sense that God is still on the throne. Now at his declaration there were some who believed and some who did not and that is the, the conflict, this is the division, this is the crisis point amongst the, in the world, isn't it? That some will believe and some will not. It's a division that we see through the Gospels and indeed throughout church history. Whenever the Gospel is preached, there is a crisis point. Are you going to believe? Or are you not going to believe? Some express openness to Jesus, whereas others turn on him and express hostility. They either deny him or hold him at arm's length. In the end, You cannot be completely indifferent towards the Holy One of God. It was like that then. It is like that today. 
cannot be ignored. Next question, where is he going? Verses 33 to 35. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time and and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me but you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we cannot find him. Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? It's interesting, isn't it, that he said to these Jews, where I am you cannot come. Compared to what he says to his disciples a few chapters later in chapter 14, verse 3, I go to prepare a place so that where I am there you may be also. What a contrast, isn't it? Where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place that you may be there also. Which group are you in? It's unmistakable, isn't it? These people who are so unwilling to respond to him will never be able to go where he goes. There is no universalism. It's not like everybody ends up in the same place. Okay? If your heart's desire, if your heart's desire is heaven, that's where you will go because you have been thinking about heaven all this time. If you end up in heaven, it will not be an accident. It will be the fulfilment of the greatest desire to be with God for the rest of eternity. Yeah, if you haven't given heaven a thought, then forget about it. You haven't trusted in the one he has sent. And here, when Jesus says, where I am you cannot come, that is an immediate judgment against these unbelieving Jews who thought that they had it all worked out, the way to heaven, Way to God, paradise. Uh, parents, you remember the days when your kids are little or not so little and then you got in the car to go somewhere and your child says, can I come? No, no, that's the other one. Uh, but <laughs> uh, can I come, Dad? And the the joy in their face when you say yes and then because the trip is going to be somewhere else or you're going to work or for whatever reason you say no, their joy turns to sadness. If a person wishes to know him, then he will prepare a place. He'll take you for the ride of your life and to the destination that he's promised. What he started, he will deliver. It comes the heart's desire. So here again, the Jews don't follow the language that Jesus is using. He's saying, I'm going to go, you cannot come. What does he mean? Does he, 
their thinking at natural level, which is the discussion in John, isn't it? They're always thinking in the material terms and he's got them rattled, he's got them confused and they say, is he going to the scattered tribes of Israel, the dispersion? Is that where he's going to teach them? Because no orthodox, no real true blue Jew will ever end up in that place because they're all, those people are all mixed up. A bit like the Samaritans. Is that where he's going? No. Of course he's talking about heaven, the eternal destiny for the believer. We're going to jump now to verse, verses 50 to 52, to the end. Nicodemus, verse 50, and we ask the question, what is he doing? What is he doing? What is he doing? Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own numbers, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that the prophet does not come out of Galilee. They were actually wrong. Prophet uh, Jonah came from the, the region of Galilee. Nahum, I think, as well. So well, there were others. So they were deliberately throwing, trying to throw him off course. Nicodemus is believed in the truth, what is right and what is wrong, and therefore he's trying to encourage the rest of the, the people there in the, in the committee to follow due process. Don't make a judgment, no, don't make a harsh, a harsh judgment without actually finding out the facts. Of course, they would have nothing up of it. But we have to ask, what is it in Jesus' behaviour that caused them to hate him so much? I mean, does, does Jesus actually take pleasure in overturning the apple cart, as it were, by forcing them to hear things that they don't want to hear? Does he take joy in upsetting them? But our Lord is not a troublemaker. He's not a revolutionary out to overthrow the system. He's not that kind of person. Though I suppose many try to make him out that way and make Jesus the revolutionary. What Jesus done is tell the truth. Whenever you tell the truth, that might be a revolutionary act. In a world of self-delusion, men prefer the lie rather than the truth our Lord is the very epitome of truth. He is it. Here is someone who deals with life exactly the way it is. This is reality. He doesn't dress it up or overbalance one aspect against another. He tells it the way it is. When you go to the doctor, would you rather him tell you nice things it's okay, everything is fine. You can believe in me or not, he 
make your choice. So, you know, it's great. Or do you sort of hang out and say, Doc, are you trying to hide something from me? Please just tell me the truth. Isn't that why we pay the doctors? Isn't that why we go and have a test and everything else because we actually want to know what is going on? What is different when we come to Jesus? We want him to tell us the truth. We want him to... It's not just about the pastor upsetting everybody else because all that the pastor is called to do is to say what Jesus said, to preach his truth, not his own truth. Not his, I'm not going to accommodate. I'm not going to tickle your ears. If you get hurt, if you get offended by what I'm saying, bad luck. I'm telling you the truth. When Jesus speaks the truth, and understand this, please understand this, he doesn't really care about your feelings. I know that's going to hurt some people. We can talk about that later. He's not dressing it up. Jesus upsets people because he wants them to stop living a lie. He loves them too much to send them to hell. He wants them to come to the truth, to have their eyes open, to be confronted with the truth, and it hurts. We speak the truth in love, but we still have to speak the truth. That is what he's doing. Now we jump back to verses 37 to 39. What does he offer? What does he offer? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now this is John looking back and, and filling us in some of the details. Each day during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, each day one of the chief priests would lead a procession down the, the Kidron Valley to the, the, pool, the pool of Siloam, which we showed some pictures before. And, and that's, a, that's a pool of water. It's a spring. With, it's all in the middle of a rock. Tall rocks around there. And out of the waters of the pool, the, the priest, he would fill a golden pitcher and carry it back up the hill to the temple and then on the temple steps, which I've shown you the pictures before, he would pour it down the steps to remind the people of the days. Remember that the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder of what it was like to live in the desert for 40 years. Had to pitch up a tent, God provided for them, the, 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 what they had to eat was the manna and then also provided them with the water. When they had no water, God miraculously provided them water from a rock or anywhere. And then in this 
festival, this reminder, this reenactment of what it was like back then, it was, a, it, was a, it was a way to teach their kids of what their forefathers had to go through. And the kids will wave the palms and rejoicing and praising God. That was the reenactment. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. And here's the point. It all comes to a climax. When the final day takes place, as the seven water processions are taking place and as they they pouring the water at the foot of the temple to symbolise all of this, Jesus stands there and makes this proclamation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is no accident. He knew what he was doing. These words are confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 So even there, all those years back, God was already teaching his people about the water that was coming from a rock, but there was going to be another rock that will supply the water, the living water that satisfied, that never ends. The rock was also upon which the church was to be built. And God was in Christ fulfilling that which the Old Testament was pointing to. And Jesus is basically saying, here I am. Here I am. What it what is more important to remember in connection with the events of this day is the fact that Jesus, far from turning himself away from the multitudes and going to hiding, many of these people, remember, were already rejecting him. They already made up their minds that he was a fraud. Jesus is still out there giving his invitation. It is an invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. What a wonderful invitation, isn't it? And then he declares that whoever believes in me, as as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's this verse 38. Here is the the image of the the living water within this this well. It keeps bubbling up because you draw the water out and the water keeps filling in and it's it's living water, it's not stagnant water, it's, it's alive, it's fresh. Unfortunately, there is this false Christian teaching coming out that uh, if you come to Jesus, he will meet all your needs, he will satisfy you, he will bless you, apart from anyone else, because it's all about you. This is the me generation, the generation that thinks only in selfish terms that coming to Jesus, all their needs will be met. And, 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 and yes, Jesus will certainly meet all your needs. 
but according to him, not according to your own definitions. He will give you what you need, not what you want. If anyone first, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, out of his heart, the, the literal word for heart is actually out of your belly. We've sort of made it a little bit nicer by saying out of your heart. It's a little bit more romantic, doesn't it? Doesn't sound out of your belly. Uh, actually, the term is, I know, out of your bowels. Okay, no, don't go there. Um, <laughs> it's 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 the fullness of of our body, out of our whole self, our innermost being shall flow. Not just the river, but rivers of living water. There is there is a gush. There's an outflow. Remember? It's very different to an inflow. This is talking about an outflow. What does he mean? Amongst other things, the sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit is that you become a blessing to everybody else around you. A blessing to his church. A blessing to those people that God is trying to touch. Someone else is helped through you. Someone else is blessed through you. Your cup is overflowing. You are going to bless other people as you listen to Jesus, as you feed on Jesus, as you draw on Jesus. His presence is felt. You lean on his grace. You enjoy his love and his acceptance. And this changes you and it will start moving around you. People, others will know, will feel, will understand that there is something different about you. You will reach out to a hurting world and as you reach out, your heart will be satisfied and say, God is using me as a channel of his blessing. We are not a dam. We are a channel. We are not a reservoir. If we are a reservoir, we become a stagnant pool. We are to bless, to flow, to give much more than we take. And where is he? Verses 45 to 47. Where is he? Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? And no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. It's, it's almost a comical incident, this one. The chief priests don't like Jesus, so they sent the guards to arrest Jesus. So when they, imagine how they felt when they come back empty-handed. Where is he? You knew where he was. You had one job to do. Bring Jesus here. Why didn't you bring him? You can almost hear the response. Uh, uh, well, boss, uh, you know, uh, we turned up and, uh, man, oh, we like this guy, hey. Eh? He spoke the truth, man. Just couldn't do anything. I'm a mesmerized. 
They were so taken by his words of truth. They forgot what they set out to do. Nobody speaks like this man does. They were, arrest, they were going to arrest Jesus and they were arrested themselves. Quite ironic, isn't it? Let me finish with this story. Many years ago in a Moscow theatre, there was a matinee idol called Alexander Rostodsev. And uh, he was actually converted while playing the role of Jesus in a play. It was actually a sacrilegious play and there have been many of those. But this one was titled Christ in a Tuxedo. He was supposed to read two verses from the Sermon on the Mount, remove his gown and cry out, Give me a tuxedo and a top hat. But as, but as he read the words... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He started to tremble. And instead of following the script, he actually continued reading from Matthew 5 out loud in his performance, ignoring the coughs and the calls and and the foot stomping from his fellow actors, you know, get on with the, with the script. He was continuing to read scripture. And finally, recalling a verse that he had learned in his childhood in the Russian Orthodox Church, he cried out from Luke 23:42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And before the curtain could be lowered, Rostodzov had trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Saviour. Arrested, completely arrested by Jesus. How many could say that that's their story as well? Mesmerised, confounded, lost in the one who came to give them life. God bless us.